All right, I think you guys should be done with that, right? Everybody finished with that? Good. All right, so um, we have a, a special guest speaker with us today, so we're gonna, I'm going to introduce him. Before I do that, though, um, really big announcement. Um, you guys know Chris and Vicki Dean. They had their baby finally, so that's awesome. And her name is Anna, and I went to go see them in the hospital the day that she had the, had the baby. Um, a few complications, but she's, she's okay now, so she's actually at home now, so be praying for them. And, um, and just be, you know, maybe encourage them on Facebook. They had a little bit of an ordeal, um, but it worked out okay. So she's, doing, she's healthy, and she's well, and Vicky is doing well, um, too. So praise God for that. And uh, that also explains why they're not here today. So I'm in, at the hospital on Friday. Um, I went to go see Chris and Vicky, and I'm walking out of the room, and he's like, Oh, yeah, we won't be there on Sunday. And I'm like, dude, I understand. Go be a father. <laughs> All right, so um, that's why they're not here. In case you're wondering, they need to be more committed, right? Don't you think? Yeah, seriously. Um, so, so today we're actually taking a, um, a little halftime break in our Ask Anything series. We're going to pick that up again next Sunday and the following two weeks after that. And so I've got a good friend of mine in town. Um, some of you guys might know my friend Ron Francis. He is from New York City. But like every New Yorker, now he lives in Florida. So every New Yorker eventually moves to Florida at some point, right? So um, he lives in Florida now, which explains the, the great Irish tan that he has still. And um, so he's going to speak to you this morning uh, from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. And so let's give a warm welcome to my friend Ron Francis. Let's go ahead and get him, get him up here. Good morning. Everybody doing all right? Yeah. You know, I, I got an email from a buddy of mine who is a pastor of a church in Long Island. And his church is canceled today because of a blizzard. So I'm going to drive home tomorrow to Florida and not have to shovel snow. I'm very excited. I decided after last winter, 63 inches of snow, that just enough was enough already. Three-hour commute to work, all of that. Nope, I'm going south. And uh, it's been fun. It's been good. Most of my family is already down there. So it's like, hey, I actually get to see my nieces and nephews and parents, and, you know. So it's good, good times. But I did grow up in Staten Island, which is the armpit of New York City. It is a small island, uh, seven miles wide, 13 miles long. And in the middle of this small island is the world's largest garbage dump. So then all around the garbage dump is where the 750,000 people live. Not in the garbage dump, but, but around it. And believe me, when I was growing up, when the wind blew in the summertime... You, did, you just didn't want to live there. But like every other uh, city or part of the Northeast, it was built before that there were really cars. So the roads aren't you know nearly as wide as they are out here, and people's driveways can only fit one car, believe it or not. It's not like out here where you guys have these Mondo 2, 3, 5, 7 car driveways. You know, where if someone, like, parks a little bit into your driveway, it's a hassle because you still have, like, 700 feet. You can kind of work around it. 
But in New York, the driveways are like maybe six feet wide, however wide a car was in like 1912. Okay. And if someone like even goes like this much into your driveway, you cannot get out unless you go over the curb, but there's usually a car parked at the curb or unless you hit them. So my neighborhood was like this. Parking was terrible. And in snowstorms, sometimes I'd have to walk like five blocks to get to my house after I parked my car because that's how little parking there was in the area. But growing up, we had this guy in the neighborhood. How many of you have that guy in the neighborhood that's just the biggest jerk? Nobody likes him. I mean, you know, hopefully you're not that guy. But we had this guy in our neighborhood. And when I was in college, you know, I would see this guy around. He's always fighting with his neighbors. He's always parking in their driveways. He's always, you know, doing all these things. Like he would do stuff to their house. And nobody liked him. The little kids in the neighborhood, they started calling him Maniac Number 7. And to my knowledge, there was not a 1 through 6. It was just Maniac Number 7. He didn't live in House Number 7. I never figured out why they called him Maniac Number 7, but that was his nickname in the neighborhood. Now, in a winter day, I guess like, like today in New York, it was a blizzard. I'm in college. I go to my best, best friend's house. He lives in a two-family house, and for those of you who have never seen a two-family house because it's Texas, it's the first floor of the house is for one family, and then the second floor of the house with a completely separate entrance is for another family. But it's the, actually the same building. So my best friend lived in the second floor of a two-family house, and so what we would do, and it was on a street called Mountain View Avenue, which, as you can imagine, was kind of hilly, we would go sit on the roof of his house, we'd go out through the living room window onto the roof of the house, and we'd just watch people in the neighborhood. Anyone ever like people watch? If you go to the mall or theme park, and you just want to see like people do crazy things because you know nobody's really normal, right? So we're we're watching. We cleared the snow off the roof, and we're watching everybody digging their cars out and shoveling, and we see maniac number seven come out of his house, and. You know, we're thinking, all right, we're going to hit this guy with a snowball because, you know, what's he going to do? Climb up the side of the house? So we're getting ready to pelt this guy with snowballs. But he gets in his truck. He starts driving up the street. And we see the two little kids that live in the house below my friend's house. They're fourth and fifth grade. And the two of them are standing there ready with their snowballs. And we're like, oh, okay, Chris and Rob have this covered. So the truck gets there, and Chris and Rob let loose with their snowballs. But it's not just two snowballs. There was like 25 or 30 snowballs that came flying at this guy's car. I had no idea from where. So, of course, being the jerk that he is, how dare you throw a snowball at my car, which can't possibly do any damage to it, but I'm going to get out and teach you a lesson anyway. So he gets out of his car and starts yelling at these kids, and Rob just starts walking across the street with his hands in his pockets like a little fourth-grade sacrificial lamb. This guy gets out of the car, grabs him, starts shaking him. This is a grown man. He's shaking this kid. He's, like, hitting him into the ground. Like, and, you know, even though there's snow on the ground, it's still cement beneath the snow. And my friend and I are like, dude, he's going to kill Rob. We need to get down there and help him. Before we could even move, this, like, battle cry rose up. And I kid you not, kids started coming out from everywhere, behind bushes, under cars, behind the tree. A couple of them were buried in the snow, and they popped up like ninjas. I mean... And they start going at this guy, and I'm telling you, 
I know a military formation when I see one. This was like the fourth and fifth grade SEAL Team 6, and maniac number seven was their Osama bin Laden. They went after him, I mean, wave after wave. He would turn to try and grab one, and another one would be like, bam, like right off his face. I mean, they left him stunned and bloody in the street. Like halfway through, we like our, our like concerns switched. We were no longer, should we help Rob? We're like, should we help this guy? I mean, he's getting torn to pieces by these little kids. That's the kind of neighborhood I lived in, too, by the way. <laughs> Not a real safe place. But I was like, Josh, dude, do you want to go down there right now? I'm like, these kids are, like, in battle mode. I'm like, you know, I got to go to school tomorrow, you know, and I don't want, you know, be limping in on crutches. Hey, what happened to you? Oh, the fourth graders. <laughs> you don't want that on your resume that you got beat up by a bunch of nine-year-olds. You know, so we just stayed up there, and we enjoyed the show. And uh, it ended after a little while, and all the kids went back around their business. The dude never even got back in his car. He left his car, well, his truck in the middle of the street and kind of crawled back to his house. It was hysterical. And I was so happy because the all, you know, all over our neighborhood, people like, someone should teach this guy a lesson. You know, someone needs to stand up to this guy. Someone needs to do something. And the little kids wind up taking care of it. But that's like human nature. It's like we love a story like that because the bad guy gets what's coming to him. How many of you love to see the bad guy get what's coming to him? Right? How many of you know people in school that you would just love to see bad things happen to? Okay? It's an, I know it's not a very Christian attitude, but it's human nature. We want to see the guilty punished. We want to see the bad drivers get a ticket. We want to see, you know, people get what they deserve. And this is kind of where Jonah found himself. Okay, we start out in Jonah 3, and it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Well, why did it come to Jonah a second time? Because the first time, Jonah ran away from it. You all know the story. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh was like, no, and Jonah was like, no thanks, God. He went as far as he could in the opposite direction. Literally, he went to Joppa, booked passage on a ship going to Tarshish, which was at the end of the known world in the opposite direction from Nineveh. He literally went as far as he possibly could. But of course, God had other plans, so he you know, had the great fish, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Jonah winds up on the shores of Nineveh, and the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. But Jonah didn't want to see Nineveh get a second chance. Jonah hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were like the big bad in the world. You know, like, like back in the 80s, we had the Cold War, and Russia was like the big bad. Okay, that's what Nineveh was like. They were the most powerful country in the world at the time. They were the ones that were always messing with the, with the Israelites. They were really wicked, evil. They would come into a, you know, a city or a town, and they would you know, burn it to the ground. They would take everything. They would kill people. These are the kind of people that would sacrifice infants to their false gods. Just evil people. And, and Jonah was like, man, God's finally fed up with them. He's finally going to do something. He's going to kill all of those people, 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh. He's going to kill them all, and it's going to be great. And then God was like, well, I'm going to give him one more chance. And Jonah's like, no, why? Why would you do that? And so... Anyway, he winds up going, and uh, it's really interesting to me that Jonah hated the people he was sent to minister to. Think about that for a second. Think about Dave is, is your youth pastor. 
He's a pretty nice guy, right? What if Dave hated you guys? I mean, if he stood up here yelling at you all the time, you know, and you heard him talking to the other leaders, oh, I just hate that Johnny. He's, oh, my. And, and you just knew that Dave hated you. He's like, listen up, you bunch of knuckleheads. You know, it's like never had anything nice to say. But how many of you would feel comfortable coming to this youth group if you knew the youth pastor hated you? How many of you would listen to what he had to say about God's love and forgiveness if you knew he hated you? Well, the Assyrians knew Jonah hated him. But interestingly enough, Jonah winds up going. He preaches the shortest message in the, in the Bible, and it winds up being, I guess, the best message ever. I don't know. But this is his message. Eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. He just walked through the city saying that. And the whole city, everybody, 120,000 people from the greatest to the least, repented. Because Jonah didn't need to preach a good message. He still hated them. He was going to do as little as he possibly could to still do what God asked him to do and get out of there. But God had a reputation among the nations back in the Old Testament time. And when a prophet of Israel showed up and said something was going to happen, it usually happened. Can you imagine if God had that kind of reputation today? Where as soon as someone found out you were a Christian, they wanted to know more about God? Can you imagine if you started talking to your friends about God and they immediately wanted to get saved? Because they knew of the reputation of God? God doesn't have a very good reputation in the world today. I mean, what are the words people use to describe Christians online? You guys are on social media, right? We're hateful. We're intolerant. We're conservatives, and apparently that's a curse word these days. But that's how people describe Christians these days. God does not have a great name among the nations, so we have to work extra hard to get people to listen to us. But back then, God's name was great among the nations. They had seen what he had done for Israel time and again. And so we get to chapter 3, and it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed and the word of the Lord. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Again, nothing about repentance, nothing about how God loves them, just the basics. And uh the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Then Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, lest everyone let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And that's 
amazing. And Jonah was ticked because he still wanted to see them get what he thought they deserved. How many of you are glad we don't get what we deserve sometimes? I know what I deserve. I'm very aware that I deserve to go straight to hell. And that's not going to happen. Because God is a God of second chances. Even in this book, it's not just the second chance he gives Jonah to obey him. It's the second chance he gives these evil people. I mean, these were the worst of the worst. And he gives them this second chance. And I think a lot of times we can't understand that. Like I read something like that, and I'm like, how could God do that? Why would God do that? I mean, I often some, you know, I often think to myself, it's a good thing I'm not God. Because there's not a whole lot of people I would give a second chance to. Like, any of you guys ever, ever think that? Like, you know, maybe someone has wronged you, and now they're forever your enemy. Maybe someone, you know, stole your girlfriend, stole your boyfriend, talked behind your back, whatever, you know, and now they're your enemy. Maybe someone made fun of you on the playground, beat you up, took your lunch, stole your Twinkies, and now they're your enemy, and you don't want to give them a second chance. You know, God said, well, these people are a whole lot worse than that, and I'm giving them a second chance. Because God always planned for us to have a second chance. In Romans 5.8, he said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Before we ever came to God and asked for forgiveness, before we ever even knew there was a God, before we ever decided that maybe our old life wasn't the way we should go, before any of that, Christ died for us. He always planned on giving us a second chance. Even way back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, God planned a second chance as soon as they sinned. Sin didn't take God by surprise. He knew it was going to happen, and he always had a way back to him ready. And so he gives it to the Assyrians. And uh, that second chance is available for all of us. And it's not just for us to get saved. It's even after we're saved. How many of you have sinned since you've become a Christian? Right? All of us. Just because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we also have our old nature, and they kind of do battle, and sometimes the old nature wins out. And sometimes we do things we're not supposed to do. And God still gives us a second chance. See, now a second chance for us requires only one thing. It requires that we actually screw up, right? Do you need a second chance if you don't screw up? You get 100 on the test, are you going to retake the test? No? Some of you are like, 100? I'd, I'd settle for like a 72, you know? It's like, all right. But you're not going to take the test if you've already, you're not going to retake the test if you've already aced it. You don't need a second chance. But if you got a 40 on the test, would you like a second chance? I mean, who wouldn't, right? Well, this time I might actually study a little. But wait, the blacklist is on. <sighs> All right, I'll settle for the 45 I'm going to get because <laughs> this is really interesting. Okay, but we get these second chances. And you know what, what's interesting to me 
is a lot of times we get these chances and we just kind of blow it. How many of you are just kind of cruising through school right now? Just cruising, right? That's what I did. Here's, here's my, my parents' expert advice to me. Their great parenting tip when I was in high school. I was on the high school basketball team. I know it doesn't look like it now, but I was at one point an athlete. But five knee surgeries and, you know, lots of years will, you know, kind of take you off your game a little. But I was on the high school basketball team. And that was pretty much all I wanted out of life at that point. And my, my dad said, Ron, I'm never going to ask you if you did your homework. I'm never going to check your report card. I don't care if you go to class. He's like, if you don't bring home at least an 85 average, you're off the team. Actually, he did check my report card. He didn't check my homework. That's what it was. He's like, if you don't bring home at least an 85 average, you're off the team. I don't care what the school says. The school says you could fail two classes. As long as you have a passing average, you could stay on the team. If you don't bring home, because I know you're a pretty smart kid. And so guess what I graduated high school with? 87 average. I mean, I spent first and second period, like, you know, down by the ferry or in Manhattan or whatever. You know, how many days? I don't know. I went to, you know, they didn't check like they do today. Every day, if you're not there, like, they, you know, start calling people. It's like they didn't care. My school had, like, 4,000 kids in it. and You know, it was built for 1,500. So they were like, all right, people are absent? Sweet. Everyone gets a seat today. Okay? So they, they didn't care. But I did, I did as little work as I could to get that grade that I needed to, to do what I wanted. And I think to myself, what a wasted opportunity. What a wasted opportunity that was. Here I was being given an education, and knowledge is power, given an education for free. That could have helped me get a better job, that could have helped me go to a better college. And I just passed up on it. I wasn't interested. And it's the same thing. God's given us such a great opportunity to do such awesome things with our lives. He's got a perfect plan for every single person in this room. And yet, we don't take it. We don't take advantage of it. And then we wind up needing that second chance. You know, when I was growing up, we used to play a game called wall ball. It was also known by more colorful names that I can't say in church. But it involved throwing a rubber ball against a brick wall. And if you missed the rubber ball, you had to run to the wall before someone pegged you with it. Okay? And if you got pegged three times, you had to stand against the wall like that and let every single person that was playing take a shot at you. Now, my neighborhood, there was like 40 or 50 teenagers on like two blocks. So there was usually about 20 of us playing that. So if you got to the point where you're against that wall, you got some pain coming. Because how many of you, if your friend was leaning up against that brick wall right there, wouldn't throw as hard a fastball as you can at their body? I mean, come on, right? Are there any of you guys in here that would show mercy? Or would you laugh at the welt on his back that you put there? <laughs> well, that's how, that's how we were. It's like, oh, check it out. This one's mine, you know. And, uh, but I think a lot of us feel like God is just up there with that rubber ball, waiting to peg us as soon as we do something wrong. When the opposite is true. The opposite is he's rooting for us and he's waiting to pick us up as soon as we fall. He's not going to add on to it by pegging us. He's not going to laugh at us. He's going to pick us up. 
I mean, the Bible tells us how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Anyone know what the word lavish means? It means heaped exceedingly. So you get a little dictionary lesson today too. All right? Lavish, it means heaped exceedingly. How great is the love the Father has heaped exceedingly upon us. That means when you're like, you know, when you're asking for more mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving and, you know, you have someone generous dishing it out and they just keep going and then all of a sudden you got this big mound of mashed potatoes, you know, and you're like, sweet, I'm going to go into a turkey and mashed potato coma in about 30 minutes. Okay, and you're ready. I mean, but it's even more than that. He just keeps going. He just keeps going. It's like, have you had enough blessing yet? Well, here comes some more. You got enough yet? Oh, here comes some more. That's how much I love you. He just heaps it upon you and he doesn't stop. And yet we think the opposite. Or we're like Jonah and we hate the people that screw up. We either hate ourselves for screwing up and we can't bring ourselves to God because, hey, what, what could God do with me? I've done so many things that were wrong. Look at the people in the Bible, David, Moses, Peter, Paul, those guys. David had an affair and killed his best friend or one of his best friends. And yet he was still known as the man after God's own heart because God forgave him. He took advantage of that second chance. Paul killed and persecuted Christians. He was pretty much the first person in history to be persecuting Christians. He would chase them down to other cities and bring them back in chains. Okay, he would stand by and approve and watch and tell people to stone these guys that were blasphemous. And in the, in the Bible times, being stoned is not what it means today. It's when people pick up rocks and throw them at you till you're dead. Okay? And this was Paul. And God said, you're the one I'm going to use to reach the nations. And he took advantage of that second chance. How many of us have taken advantage of our second chance? Okay, how many of us have humbled ourselves like the Assyrians did and said, we don't want this destruction, we want another chance? How many of us have humbled ourselves like any great person in the Bible did? David humbled himself before God. Peter, Paul, they humbled themselves before God. The Bible tells us over and over again, you know, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's like we try and lift ourselves up. God's the one that wants to lift us up. And he'll lift us up higher than we could ever go on our own. So how many of us want to take advantage of that second chance that we've so freely been given? The entire city of Nineveh took advantage. They repented. And it's not like they fake repented, like they can, you know, fool God. And they're like, okay, uh, we're going to stop our evil God. I think it's going to work. He knows. Okay, they got on the ground. They put sackcloth on. That was the universal sign of humility and mourning. Okay, they sat in the dust. They didn't eat. They fasted and they prayed. Okay, God's not making us work like that for a second chance. Okay, we have his son Jesus. How many of us are going to take advantage, full advantage of that second chance that God's given us to live the perfect and wonderful life that he has for each one of you? He has a plan for every single one of us. And if we stick to that plan, our life is going to be better than we can dream. I'm not saying we're going to be rich. I'm not saying we're going to be famous. I'm not saying everything is always going to go right. I'm saying God's going to be with each one of us through all of it.
whether it goes wrong or whether it goes right. And it's going to be an amazing trip, an amazing adventure, because he has that planned out for each of us. How many of us are going to take advantage of that? So I'm going to close in prayer, and then Dave is going to come up, and I think you guys are going to have some discussion. Lord, thank you so much for this time we could spend together. I pray that you would help us all to take advantage of the second chance that you've given us so freely. Lord, we love you, and we just uh, pray that you'll be with us in this uh, discussion time. In your name, amen. Thanks so much, Ron. Really encouraging words from uh, Ron today. And um, I think what he says is true. You know, we, a lot of times we look at the Bible, we look at these guys and uh, women in the Bible, and we see them as, um, as, as quote-unquote heroes, and in many senses they are. But um, Jonah is, in a sense, an unlikely hero because of what Ron said, which is he's someone who didn't actually like the people he's ministering to, and yet God still chose to use him. And I think God chose to use someone like that because he wanted to humble Jonah as well. It's like he wasn't just teaching the Assyrians a lesson, he was teaching Jonah a lesson and wanted to see him humbled as he began to minister um, to people that he didn't even care for and like. And so this morning we're going to have you guys um, uh, have some discussion questions here. So go ahead and uh, begin your discussion when you guys finish. Just wrap up in prayer and you guys will be dismissed after that. Go ahead and discuss.